Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, let me begin my sermon with a statement, and it's an obvious one. When it comes to receiving the same treatment and having access to the same opportunities as their male counterparts, things have not exactly been easy for women. Things have not exactly been easy for women. I'm a bit of a history nerd, as I'm sure many of you have come to know over the past year and a half since I've been here. Uh, History was always one of my favorite subjects when I was in school, and earlier this week, I learned about Elizabeth Blackwell. Anybody here ever heard of Elizabeth Blackwell? Elizabeth Blackwell was actually the first woman in our nation to graduate from medical school and become a doctor. Um, As it turns out, back in the 1840s, there had never been a female medical student. Uh, Blackwell, after seeing a friend of hers get hurt and just wanting to help that person, she really felt led to become a doctor. And so she applied to about a dozen different medical colleges in the Northeast, but unfortunately was denied admission for no other reason other than the fact that she was a woman. Well, eventually, one medical college considered her application, and that was Geneva Medical College in Western New York. The dean of the college decided that he would grant Blackwell admission, but there was a caveat. Every male student in the student body had to agree. If even one male student of the 150 male students said no, then she would not be granted admission. Well, apparently, most of the male medical students thought the whole thing was a joke. And so they decided to join in this joke, or what they assumed was a joke, and they unanimously voted to accept her. It was Blackwell who got the last laugh because she showed up in the fall ready to learn how to heal. But it was not easy for her. She was harassed. She was picked on, she was mocked, she was bullied, but she pursued, uh, she had perseverance, and she graduated from that program some years later, uh, ended up being a fantastic physician and a pioneer for women in our country. Things have not exactly been easy for women. For example, it wasn't until 1848 that women could enter into legal contracts in our country. 1848, that women could enter into legal contracts in our country. And of course, it wasn't until 1920, many, many years after our nation was founded, that women finally had the right to vote. And it wasn't until 1974, 1974 was it even 50 years ago, that Congress passed legislation ensuring that men and women equally could apply for a credit card. We have made strides as a nation when it comes to equality, but we do have a ways to go. But this morning, I want us to think back further. I want us to think back further than the history that I've just identified. I want us to think back further than the 1970s, the 1920s, and even the 1840s. I want us to think back to 2,500 to 3,500 years ago. 2,500 to 3,500 years ago. Imagine how tough life was for women back then. Uh, Today we are kicking off a brand new series of sermons uh, that I'm really excited about. I've been looking forward to this series for a while. 
We're calling this series Behind the Veil. We have the graphic up here on the screen. In addition to coming up with a bumper video, Hannah King put together that graphic for us. Uh, this is a six-week series. And in the six-week series, uh, we are going to be exploring, uh, carefully analyzing the stories of various women in the Old Testament. Even though these women lived in a culture that was patriarchal, a culture where women were treated as subservient to men, as second-class citizens, these women found ways to challenge that culture. They modeled leadership. They demonstrated faith and courage and trust. They did remarkable, incredible, amazing things for God. And because of that, it's impossible for us to calculate the sort of impact that these women have had or where we would be today without them. They have left a legacy for us to learn from. And so during the next month and a half, uh, this should take us through most of the rest of summer. Uh, during the next month and a half, we are going to allow the lives and the stories of these women to speak to us, to teach us what it means to be a follower of God in the 21st century. And the woman that we are going to start with as we kick off this new series is a person by the name of Miriam. M-I-R-I-A-M, Miriam. My hunch is that some of us might not know Miriam by name, but we may be familiar with her story. Her story is one of incredible wit. But before we dive into her story, it's important that we set the stage a bit. So let's set the stage. In Genesis 12, and of course, uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so 12 chapters into the Bible. In Genesis 12, God appears to this man named Abram. You ever heard of Abram before? His name eventually turns into Abraham. And God tells Abraham and his wife, do you remember her name? Sarah. God tells Abraham and Sarah to leave their home, leave their country, leave their family, and to go to the land that God's going to show them. Now imagine if you were Abraham and Sarah, and you know, God comes and says, you're going to go to a land, and it's going to be the land that I'm going to show you. Okay, great. Thanks for all those specific details. I really appreciate that. But that land ends up being the land of Canaan. God promises to give Abraham and Sarah and their offspring, their children, their descendants, the land of Canaan as an inheritance. This is the start of the Israelite people. Now, the issue is Abraham and Sarah are not exactly what we would call spring chickens. They're not young. Uh, they're well along in years, and they've yet to have a son. But they take God at his word, generally speaking. There's some bumps along the way, and many of you know that. But they generally take God at his word, and a son is born to them. Do you remember the name of that son? Isaac. Isaac means laughter because God got the last laugh. A son was born to Abraham and Sarah despite their old age. While Isaac grows up, he gets married to his wife. What's her name? It's up here. Rebecca. And then Isaac and Rebecca have twin boys. What are their names? Jacob and Esau. Well, then what happens is God carries out the promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah, not through Esau, even though he was older, but instead through Jacob. God renames Jacob Israel, and then he blesses Israel with 12 sons. Imagine having 12 boys in your household. One of these sons is named Joseph. Now, Joseph is a daddy's boy. His father spoils him rotten, gives him all this attention, all this care, all this affection. He even gives him a special coat to show Joseph that he loves him more than his other brothers. His other brothers don't appreciate that very much. 
They resent Joseph. They're jealous of Joseph. They're envious of him. And so they conspire and they plot and they decide to kill him. But then at the last minute, instead of murdering him, they decide to make a profit. They sell him into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt, far away from home as a slave. But to make a long story short, and it is a long story, Joseph's story is actually the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. But to make a long story short, God's hand is upon Joseph the whole time. God blesses Joseph, and Joseph ends up becoming one of the most important government officials in all of Egypt. He is second only to Pharaoh, the king. Well, sometime later, there's this famine that takes place across the land. This famine affects Egypt, it affects Canaan, but fortunately, Joseph knew ahead of time, because God showed it to him, that this famine was going to take place, and it allowed the Egyptians plenty of time to stock up on food, so they have this abundant food supply. Joseph's brothers, they come down into Egypt looking for food. And who's in charge of the food supply? Joseph is. Joseph could have gotten even with his brothers, but instead he forgave them. There was reconciliation that happened. Hugs and kisses and this great family reunion happens in Egypt. And then Joseph tells his brothers, he says, hey, listen up. This famine's going to last a while. So I encourage all of you to relocate from Canaan and to come down to Egypt. And that's what they do. Well, then a generation goes by. And another generation. And another generation. And another generation. Until finally, Joseph and his brothers are long gone. They've passed away. And the people of Israel are no longer a single family. Instead, they're a nation. And they're populating Egypt. And then a new pharaoh comes to power. And this new pharaoh knows nothing about Joseph or all the wonderful things that Joseph did for um, Egypt during the famine. And this new pharaoh is threatened by all these Israelites. He's paranoid. He's afraid that they're going to team up with a nearby nation and take over Egypt. So what he does is he forces them into slavery. He gives them building projects, believing that the projects will slow down their growth. And yet, ironically, the more he oppresses the Israelites, the more they grow. And then Pharaoh says, enough is enough. I can't take this anymore. From here on out, I'm issuing a decree that every male child born to these Israelite slaves should be thrown into the waters of the Nile River. The girls can live. The boys have to be executed. Pharaoh's order must have brought terror to every Israelite mother and father living in Egypt. But that terror was in no way matched by one young woman's determination to go against that order and to do the right thing. That's where Miriam's story comes in. And so having set the stage, having set the context, listen with me to these words from Exodus 2 where Miriam's story is found. Uh, this is going to be our starting point. I'll read this passage and then we'll talk about it together. It says, about this time, in other words, about the time that Pharaoh gave this order that every male child should be killed, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi, remember there were 12 tribes in Israel because Israel had 12 sons, about this time a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance. 
watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Without question, Moses is the most famous figure in the entire Old Testament. Now, in truth, Jesus is the most famous figure in all the Bible, but when it comes to specifically the Old Testament, Moses is the most famous figure. But we would know nothing of Moses had it not been for the quick thinking of his big sister that day. i got to share something with you. For the longest time when I read this story growing up, and like a lot of you, I, I learned this story when I was in Sunday school. I was taught it from a young age. Well, whenever I read this story, I misread it. I always thought to myself, what a nice accident. Well, what a nice coincidence. How nice that the spot where baby Moses was placed along the reeds of the Nile River, how nice that that spot just happened to be the very same spot where Pharaoh's daughter was taking a bath. And how nice that Pharaoh's daughter actually decided to have compassion and pity on this baby. Listen, this was no coincidence. This was no accident. This was no random turn of events. This whole thing had been brilliantly orchestrated by Moses' mom and Moses' big sister. Check out again what it says in verse 4 of chapter 2. As soon as Moses is put in the papyrus basket... The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. This is not a passive watching. It's really easy for us to miss this in the English, but the original Hebrew, remember the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the original Hebrew conveys a far more intense and active watching. To put it simply, there was a reason Miriam was standing at that exact location. Think about it for a moment. If Miriam had been right by the papyrus basket, well, an Egyptian officer would have spotted something unusual going on. He would have seen the basket. He would have found the baby. He would have killed baby Moses. But if Miriam had left the baby completely unattended, then some wild animal would come and devour him. And so Miriam had clearly thought this through. She was close enough to see the action, but far enough away so as not to draw attention on herself or her brother. This was a dangerous assignment for a teenage girl. Miriam could have been killed for what she was doing that day. But she really felt she had no choice. She felt a sense of duty, an obligation to her kin. She felt the need to protect her brother. After all, her family had done all that they could to hide Moses for how long? For three months. I remember when I was a kid, about uh, maybe eight or nine years old, 
we had a stray cat in our neighborhood. Anybody ever have stray cats in your neighborhood? And this stray cat, a lot of you are laughing right now, this stray cat gave birth to a litter of kittens. And so here I am as a kid, and I really wanted one of those kittens. But I knew, of course, that my parents wouldn't allow it. They would say to me, Christopher, they always call me Christopher, we have way too many pets, you cannot have that kitten. So I decided that I would keep the kitten anyway without them knowing about it. Sounds really smart, right? I would just put it in my closet. They would never know. You know how long that worked? For about five hours. If hiding a kitten is hard, how much harder is it to hide a human baby, especially as that baby gets older? Because babies have this way of getting older and developing personalities and making a fuss, and, and especially given the fact that Pharaoh, this paranoid Pharaoh, he has eyes and ears all over Egypt. Miriam's family knew, Moses' family knew, that if Moses were going to be, was going to be spared, that they needed a plan, and that's where Pharaoh's daughter came in. Because they understood the fact that if Pharaoh was going to go against his own order, that the only person in the world who could convince Pharaoh to do that was his daughter. Because, and you all know this to be true, daughters have this way of wrapping their dads around their fingers, don't they? <laughs> Getting their dads to do things that they wouldn't normally want to do. It reminds me of this guy up here. I'm not sure if this is something that this guy would have normally been doing, but his daughter asked him to a tea party and asked him to be a part of the tea party, and so that's what he ended up doing. And believe me, I know a thing or two about daughters and the way that daughters wrap their dads around their fingers. This is a picture, of course, of Hannah and me. I love to share pictures of my kids, uh, my family. You know, sometime when this picture was being taken, I remember I was picking up Hannah and Noah from the Learning Center. Uh, they're enrolled at the Learning Center here at the church. And Hannah, she was three years old at the time, she ran up to me and she said, Daddy, Daddy, I drew you a picture. Listen, I could have been holding a painting by Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci or Rembrandt and I would have tossed it on the ground in that moment. That painting would have been worthless compared to the drawing I was holding for my daughter that day. Don't tell Hannah I said this, but she could have asked me for anything in that moment. And I would have absolutely done it for her. So let's go back to the story. In our minds, we can just picture this Egyptian princess. She has this baby, and she runs home, and she says to her father, Daddy, can we keep him? Please, Daddy, can we keep him? He's so cute. He's so adorable. Yeah, I know you gave that order that every male child should be killed, but come on. Look how cute he is. I promise I'll take good care of him. Make no mistake about it. Miriam knew precisely what she was doing when she stood by the riverbank that day. That's the thing about big sisters. Do we have any big sisters here in this room? Any, any big sisters worshiping online? Big sisters tend to be smart like that, amen? They tend to be clever like that. And they always seem to be one step ahead of the rest of us. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, just watch this video clip. Rule number one, never touch my stuff. You should be taking notes. <laughs> Rule number two, never set foot on my half of the room. How do I get out of here? Easy, you jump out the window and climb down the tree. I don't think so. <laughs> Suit yourself. I'll find a way out. <laughs> 
Does anybody know what a TV show that clip is from? Say it louder. Full House. I used to watch Full House every Friday night when I was a kid growing up. That was one of my favorite shows on TV uh, when I was a child. Uh, the name of that big sister is DJ Tanner. But Miriam was the original big sister long before DJ Tanner ever was. But the reason I want to share that clip with you is that clip actually calls to mind the takeaway virtue that we glean from Miriam. I'm sure there are many takeaway virtues that we glean from her, but the takeaway virtue that I want to highlight during the rest of our time this morning is this. And if you're taking notes, I encourage you and invite you to write this down. The takeaway virtue that we glean from Miriam is shrewdness. Can you say this word with me? Shrewdness. Another word for shrewdness is cleverness. In other words, being wise, being sharp, being observant, being astute. And here's what I mean by this. Miriam understood the world that she was living in, did she? She understood the world that she was living in. She knew that Egyptians despised and hated Israelites, but she also understood the human heart. She knew that if this Egyptian princess saw a baby all by himself with nobody to care for him, that her heart would go out to this baby. Despite the fact that he was an Israelite, she would still have compassion on this baby. She would take pity on him, that she would love on him. And clearly, that conviction was well-founded because listen to what it says in verse 6, as soon as the princess finds the baby, the little boy was crying, and she felt what? Sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. When you read that statement, you have to hear just the empathy in those words. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Miriam recognized that Egyptians have maternal instincts just like Israelites do. That cultural patterns might influence the structures of motherhood, but there's no ethnicity that makes a person any less of a mother. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Motherhood is universal, isn't it? Moms, am I right? Amen? Motherhood is universal. Miriam knew that. And she cleverly played into it. Listen to what happens next. Uh, this, is, uh, verses, uh, this is verse 7. It says, Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women? To nurse the baby for you, she asked. You got to notice this. When Miriam approaches the royal official, does she speak to her as an Israelite to an Egyptian? No. Does she speak to her as a slave to a princess? No. Those are social boundaries that are hard to breach. Instead, she speaks to her in a very shrewd way as one person with maternal instincts to another. And we also have to recognize this. Miriam knows that as much as Pharaoh's daughter might have compassion on Moses, might take pity on Moses, even if she were lactating, and we don't know if she was lactating, but even if she were lactating or some other woman in Egypt was lactating, they would not want to nurse him. Because there was a conviction back then that something more than food is transmitted in the process of nursing. So what Miriam does, Miriam was a genius, what she does in this very clever way is she gives a head nod to the ethnic sensitivities of the Egyptians while at the same time satisfying the cultural and the religious convictions of her own people. I'm going to say that once more. She gives a head nod 
to the ethnic sensitivities of the Egyptians while at the same time satisfying the cultural and the religious convictions of her own people. And so with Pharaoh's daughter's permission, she fetches one of the Israelite women to nurse the child, and the person that she just so happens to grab is who? The baby's mom. Was that an accident? Absolutely not, but that's the person that she just so happens to grab. Uh, this is from Exodus 2, verses 8 through 9. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. How do you like them apples? <laughs> Miriam should have been a military strategist. Not only is Moses' life spared, but on top of that, Moses' mom gets paid out of Pharaoh's own pocketbook for doing the very thing she wants to do more than anything in the universe. Be a mom. By the way, some of us might be wondering, how do we know that her name is Miriam? Because her name isn't actually given in the story. I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> well, more than 80 years, or about 80 years after this incident, uh, this child who Miriam rescued, Moses, uh, as a lot of us know, he grew up and he was called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Of course, Moses went to Pharaoh, told Pharaoh to let the people of God go. Pharaoh didn't want to do it. God sent the plagues upon the Egyptians. After the 10th plague, uh, Pharaoh changed his mind. He let the people of God go. But then he changed his mind again at the last minute. He started to come after them. And so the Israelites, they were at the very edge of the Red Sea. And what happens next? God, through Moses, parts the waters of the sea, allowing the Israelites to walk safely across on dry ground. And then when the Israelites get to the other side and they're safe, the Egyptians are right there in the sea. God closes the waters in on the Egyptians, destroying them, crushing them. As soon as that defeat happened, this is what the text reads in Exodus 15, verses 20 through 21. It says that Miriam, the prophet, by the way, as an aside, women were prophets in the Old Testament, just like men were. It wasn't just men, women as well. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women as they played their tambourines and danced. And Miriam sang this song, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. Aaron was who? Moses' brother. And so we can surmise from this information that Miriam was Moses' sister, the very sister who so shrewdly rescued him when he was a three-month-old baby. And folks, God is calling us. God is inviting us. God is asking us to follow in Miriam's footsteps and use this same kind of shrewd and clever thinking for the sake of the kingdom. God is inviting us to follow in Miriam's footsteps and use the same kind of shrewd and clever thinking for the sake of the kingdom. Imagine with me for a moment, just imagine with me, what the church would look like with a bunch of Miriams. With a bunch of people committed to surrendering their minds to God, their brains, their intellects to God, and using their minds to fulfill God's purposes in the world. Looking at the world around them and saying, how can I leverage what I have and what I know 
and use it for God? How can I, despite the obstacles and the challenges and the hardships before me, overcome by God's grace these obstacles, these challenges, these hardships, and creatively make a difference in my corner of the world? I think the church would look a lot different. I think God would bless our efforts. Shrewd thinking comes in many forms. But when we employ it, there's no telling what our God might do. Greg Boyd is a pastor in Minnesota and a seminary professor. I've mentioned his name in sermons in the past. And for the longest time, he was not a Christian because he struggled with doubt, questions. But then in the 1980s, he decided to give his heart over to God to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, of course, after he became a Christian, Greg was so excited about that, and he wanted to tell everybody, including his family, which included his dad. Greg's dad was less than thrilled. His name was Edward. Um, Ed saw this transformation that had taken over his son, but he was skeptical. He kind of stood at a distance. He wasn't quite sure what to make of all this, and, and certainly he wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith. He had grown up religious, but had a bad experience, and so he did not identify as a Christian. Of course, Greg, he wanted his dad to come to know the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. But despite all his best efforts, his father would not budge. And then Greg realized something. His dad loved to debate. He loved to engage in intellectual conversations about different subject matters. And so one day, Greg wrote a letter to his father. And he said, Dad, I want to invite you to correspond with me about the Christian faith. I invite you to write down whatever objections you have, and I'm going to respond as best I can to those objections. This is what Greg wrote in that first letter. Now, I know you, Dad, so I know that my preaching at you would do absolutely no good. I tried that the first year I was a Christian, remember? Believe me, I have no inclination to do that. What I'd rather propose to you is to engage in an ongoing discussion about Christianity. I'd like to give you an opportunity to share with me all the reasons you have for not being a Christian, and I'd like to give you all the reasons why I am one. Would you be willing to do this? Ed Boyd was willing to do that. So he wrote letter after letter to his son, giving all his objections, and he received response after response right back. And by the way, if you're interested, you could purchase uh, this correspondence. It's in a book entitled Letters from a Skeptic. A son wrestles with his father's questions about Christianity. I have a copy in my office if anybody wants to borrow it. Letters from a skeptic. A son wrestles with his father's questions about Christianity. Well, what happened, Ed's heart began to soften. He became more open to what he was hearing. And then one day, he surrendered his life to God. He received the salvation that only the Lord Jesus makes possible. This is what he wrote in his final letter to Greg. Well, as I told you over the phone, I finally took the leap. Hallelujah. As I sit here and read over all our correspondence, I still can't believe how I've changed from a smart aleck, he actually doesn't say smart aleck, he says something else, a smart aleck know-it-all to an actual believer. My wife, Jean, your stepmom, she can't believe it either. It's probably even confused the hell out of our dog. He uses pretty tough language. <laughs> the angels whom you say rejoice over this sort of thing, they're probably giving each other high fives. 
Have you told your sister Anita yet? I bet she'll be floored. And it wouldn't have happened without your persistence, son. And I want you to know, I love and appreciate you for this. Rather than using some cookie-cutter approach, some traditional approach for reaching his dad, or rather than considering his dad a lost cause, Greg got creative. He thought outside the box. He found a means of effectively engaging his dad with the truth of God's love. He employed shrewd thinking, just like Miriam did, just like all of us are called to do. Folks, shrewdness is a virtue. Shrewdness is a virtue that is meant to be harnessed. So by God's grace and the Spirit's power, let's harness this virtue and use it for God. Let's see what God does. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you for Miriam. What a remarkable woman she was. Thank you for her story and what it teaches us about being shrewd. Thank you also for Greg's story and his dad Ed's story and how Ed eventually became a follower of you and received salvation. God, we pray uh, that we would use our minds uh, for you and for your purposes, that we would look at the world around us and decide to leverage what we have and what we know, not for ourselves, but for you, so that a difference might be made in your name in this world that you so deeply love. God, thank you that you have blessed us with brains and intellects. Please, God, help us to use these things in such ways that more people might come to experience the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.